Imagine parachuting into enemy territory without a map uh, or a GPS tracker or even a mental sketch in your head of what that enemy territory looked like. Maybe you knew where you'd be starting from and you knew where you were meant to end up but you, have no, you had no real idea of what there was in between. You'd maybe heard of some famous landmarks that you might come across but you didn't know how they fitted into the overall lie of the land. Well, that would be a terrible idea. And yet Christians can be a bit like that with the Bible. We know that it starts in Genesis with a perfect world. Uh, We know that it ends in in Revelation with God's people in heaven. Uh, But much of what comes between it, and particularly the Old Testament, can be a bit of a mystery. Uh, There are famous uh, Bible stories that everyone knows or or everyone used to know. uh, But how do they relate to our lives I uh, think of the, the story of uh, baby Moses being kept safe in a basket made out of bulrushes. How does that apply to us? Is the application that God will always look after us? But what about the other Israelite babies who, who didn't survive? Or there's the famous story of David and Goliath. Uh, have you, you killed any giants lately? Is the application of that story just that we should be brave in the hard situations of our lives, that we all have our giants to face? As we saw recently when when we looked at that story, we we instinctively identify ourselves with David rather than the 99.9% of the people who are scared, witless, and need God's anointed king to come and save them. And if that is how we read uh, the Bible stories, what, what does it say that we're looking for as we read the Bible? Jesus tells us uh, repeatedly that the Old Testament speaks about him. He calls his disciples fools for not understanding that. But how do the stories of baby Moses or the killing of a great giant relate to Jesus? On the other hand, some Christians are are rightly convinced of the need to see Jesus in uh, the Old Testament. But they do so in very ingenious ways uh, that the Holy Spirit never intended. Uh, A number of years ago, a popular Christian radio broadcast featured a sermon on the book of Nehemiah. It's where the people are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. How would you get to Jesus from there? Well, this preacher did it by, by means of word association. Uh, Nehemiah mentions a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. And uh, so the preacher took it as a way of jumping straight to John 10, where we're told that Jesus is the good shepherd. Uh, they did something similar for the other gates as well. And if we don't have a, have a map of the Bible in our heads, uh, that's the sort of thing we might end up doing. Or if we hear other people interpreting the Bible like that, we'll think, well, well that's, that's great. <clears throat> uh, yes, the book of Nehemiah absolutely points us to Jesus, uh, as I trust we, we saw a year or two ago when we looked at that book. But it points us to Jesus in ways that the Holy Spirit intended us to see. 
Charles Spurgeon tells the story of an old minister who heard a young man preach a sermon. Uh, the young man asked the, the old minister what he thought of it. The old minister was reluctant to answer, but eventually he said, If I must tell you, I did not like it at all. Uh, there was no Christ in your sermon. The young man replied, Well, that's because I didn't see Christ in the text. Well, said the old minister, do you not know that from every little town and village and hamlet in England there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get hold of a verse, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Uh, boys and girls, we, we live on a, on a road called London Road and if we are to follow that road, eventually we get to London and every part of the Bible there is a road uh, that if you follow it it will get you to Jesus. Uh, This isn't about us inventing our own uh, off-road way to Jesus uh, like the radio preacher tried to do. It's it's finding the road God had already built. Uh, There's a big big clamour these days for reopening uh, the railways that were were closed by by the Beecher report. Uh, Eight years ago the Borders Railway reopened uh, but they didn't need to to, to start from scratch uh, to to make a whole new new route from Tweedbank to Edinburgh uh, because there there already was a a railway route from the Borders to Edinburgh uh, but it just hadn't been used in 46 years And in the same way, I'm not suggesting in this series that we need to come up with new ways to to get to Jesus from different parts of the Bible. Uh, But rather, it's about rediscovering the Bible's own network of roots. Uh, And I trust this series will be helpful to you as you read your Bible. Some Christians look on the Bible as a book of quotes. Uh, They open it each morning to get inspiration But the quote that they read one day doesn't necessarily have any connection with with what they read yesterday or what they'll read the next day. But every part of the Bible is meant to be read in light of the rest. Uh, Often even the the way Bibles are are, are printed isn't the most helpful in this regard. Uh, Bibles can often look more like reference books than uh, books you just sit down and read with with two columns on a page, lots of cross-references, sometimes even each verse separated out as a separate uh, paragraph by itself. But in recent years there's been been a a, a change against that. More and more Bibles are being printed where the text isn't split up into columns, where there are fewer references, where where the, the sentences are in paragraphs. Sometimes even chapter numbers and verse numbers are removed. Uh, They're they're known as readers' Bibles. And they're actually far more like the the manuscripts on which the Bible was originally written. I don't think there's a a right and and wrong way of doing it. I use both. Uh, I do struggle with with Bibles where where each verse is separated out by itself because those are, are after all, man-made divisions. There's a place for both approaches. As long as we remember that the Bible is one story. We don't read novels as if each chapter could be separated out from the rest. Of course the Bible isn't a novel but the same principle applies. If you're reading an Agatha Christie mystery novel uh, you might come across a sentence like this. 
risk everything, that's my motto. It's a good thing for me that someone strangled that poor kid. If you just do that sentence by itself, you're left confused. Who's speaking? Who's been killed? If you want to understand the story, you need to know what happened before and learn what happens after. And if two people want to read the same novel, it won't do to to tear it in half and give one half to each person. The first person will find out that someone has been killed, but, but their half of the book will finish before they find out who did it. The person with only the second half of the book will find out who did it, but they won't know what they did. And it's the same with the Bible. We need a way of looking at it that makes sense of both the Old Testament and the New Together they make up God's word. We don't have the option of treating them like separate books. The Old Testament on its own is an unfinished story. It's a promise without a fulfillment. But the New Testament assumes that we know the Old Testament. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Passover lamb, the son of David, the true vine or the good shepherd? Without the Old Testament, we won't know. So basically, we we want a map which makes sense of the whole Bible. So when we're in the middle of 2 Chronicles and, and wondering how it fits in with the main story of the Bible, the map will help. So that when we're teaching children, uh, we're not teaching them lessons that they could hear in, in in a, in a synagogue or a mosque in some cases with, with the Old Testament things like uh, well David was brave so you should be brave too or, or, or even when we get to the New Testament well, well only one of the ten lepers came back to, to, to thank Jesus and that was bad so, so you should say thank you to people who help you now, now there's truth in both those statements uh, there, there's lessons we can learn But it's scarily possible to teach lots of moral lessons about the Bible uh, that have no real connection to who Jesus is and why he came to die. So how are we going to keep our bearings when we're in the the Minor Prophets or the book of James? Uh, People have tried to sum up the message of the Bible in different ways. Uh, They've looked for one theme which sums up the Bible. And there are are a couple of ways we could go about it. But probably the simplest way of looking at the whole Bible is under the theme of the kingdom of God. The whole Bible is about the kingdom of God. Do you remember the first words uttered by Jesus when he began his public ministry as recorded in Mark chapter 1? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And obviously when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he he expected them to know what the kingdom of God was. And at that time all they had to go on was the Old Testament. That means that Genesis which we read earlier, tells us something about the kingdom of God. It means Exodus tells us something about the kingdom of God. So wherever we are in the Bible, if we look for this theme of the kingdom of God, it will connect us to the main story of the Bible, which is, why, which is about why Jesus came. Uh, 
And the theme of the kingdom of God doesn't just sum up what's happened up until Jesus comes and and his own ministry. But it describes what Jesus continues to do uh, and teach today. Uh, Jesus uh, began and ended his earthly ministry by talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, He says in Matthew 24, looking forwards, this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed throughout the whole world to all nations. And then the end will come. This ties in with the series we just finished on the Beatitudes. They start and end with the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are about uh, the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom. So if the kingdom of God is one of the keys to understanding the Bible's message, then what is it? Well, put a one-sentence definition on your handout. It's one that, God willing, we're going to flesh out a bit over the next seven weeks of this series. So if it doesn't mean a whole lot today, don't don't worry about that. Uh, But this is a definition we can uh, apply to any part of Scripture and ask, what does this tell me about the kingdom of God? So here's the definition. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing and presence. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing and presence. The theme of the kingdom of God ties the whole Bible together. And it's God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing and presence. Or at least that's the ideal, because we don't always, we don't always, uh, we don't often uh, see all those things together. But wherever you turn to in the Bible, you can ask, well, who are God's people in this passage? Where are they, or where are they trying to get to? Are they living under God's rule Are they experiencing his blessing and presence? To to see where we're going with this, take the theme of God's place. God's place. Uh, That is the place that God's people are in. In Genesis 1 and 2, where are God's people? They're in the Garden of Eden. But then we get to chapter 3, and they're banished from the Garden then in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham uh, God's people get a new place it's the promised land eventually they reach there only for for it all to happen again they're they're banished from the promised land because of their sin just as they were with the garden of Eden after the coming of Jesus God's people are no longer focused in on on one particular place but instead in the New Testament uh, the the church is God's place people from all nations meeting to worship Jesus and yet an even greater fulfilment lies ahead as heaven is described as the new Jerusalem it's pictured using the language of the Garden of Eden it's the true promised land So Eden, uh, the earthly promised land, Jerusalem, they all point us to heaven. When God's people live peacefully in Eden and Canaan, it shows us what heaven will be like. Uh, When God's people are kicked out of Eden or Canaan because of their sin, it it shows us that nothing unclean will ever enter heaven, uh, as the book of Revelation will spell out for us. 
when the Gentiles are brought into the church in the book of Acts that we looked at last summer, it tells us that heaven will be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language who've trusted in Jesus. So when you're reading about Eden or the conquest of Canaan or God's people being sent into exile, uh, this whole theme of place is one of the roads which will take you to the main story of the Bible. Why Jesus came. Because really the story of God's people doesn't change. Someone in the Old Testament may have lived thousands of years ago. But their story is the same as our story. Think about how an Israelite living at the time of the Exodus would have explained their faith to someone else. Uh, they would have said something like this. It's, it's a long quote but it's, it's on your sheet. We were in a foreign land in bondage under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with a promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Well, that's talking about Moses, the mediator, the foreign land being Egypt. It's talking about the blood being sprinkled on the doorpost. It's talking about the promised land of Canaan. It's talking about God's presence in the pillar of fire and cloud. But it could equally well be talking about the foreign land of sin, of our mediator, Jesus Christ, of uh, taking shelter under his blood, of him being with us and guiding us by his word and spirit, of our, our final home that we're on the road to being heaven. But New Testament, Old Testament, uh, a Christian could take those words, a believer could take those words and, and, and say them word for word as their experience. And so we don't need fanciful ways uh, from getting to the gospel from, from the Old Testament. Uh, their faith was the same as ours. The connections are all over the place. Uh, we, we just need to look out for them. So that's basically where we're going for the rest of this series. Every week we'll take the next big section of the Bible and we'll look for these four things. We'll look for God's people, we'll look for God's place, we'll look for God's rule and we'll look for, for, for the people experiencing his rule and blessing. And so very quickly now, just for our last few minutes, we'll try it out with Genesis 1 and 2. We'll ask where do we see God's people in these verses? Where is God's place? Are, are people living under God's rule and are they experiencing his blessing and presence? So firstly, God's people in Genesis 1 and 2. God's people. Well, no prizes for guessing who God's people are in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, boys and girls, who was the first man? Adam. Who was the first woman? Eve. God has two people in the beginning, Adam and Eve. But before the Bible even gets to the people, it tells us about God. Uh, the first four words of the Bible are so significant. In the beginning, God. 
That flags up right at the start that the Bible isn't first and foremost a book about us. It's a book about God and that is a good thing. So often in our lives we try to make other things number one. Uh, We take the throne that rightfully belongs to God and try and put other things in his place. Ourselves, our, our family, our work, our reputation. We take good things and try and make them God things. And it makes us miserable. Why? Because God is king, not us. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. And if there's a kingdom, then it must have a king. And the Bible makes very clear that God himself is that king. This king creates everything. God is not the author of evil, but even Satan was created by God. Satan was an angel who rebelled. That means he's not some sort of uh, force who is opposite to God, but equal to God. Uh, Yes, Satan is powerful, uh, but but he is a creature. He he is opposite to God, but he is not equal to God. Uh, And the the pinnacle of God's creation is is with the creation of, of mankind. God creating men and women in his own image. We're told about it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's so important. What does it mean for men and women to be made in God's image? Well, the Mormons will say it means that God has a body. And so the fact that we have a body, that's, that's what it means to be made in God's image. But no, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. Being made in God's image does mean, however, that we're God's representatives on earth. It, it means we're to reflect what God is like. The theory of evolution tries to strip men and women of dignity. It tries to reduce us to the level of apes. But God says no. Men, women, boys and girls are infinitely more valuable than animals. Like God, we will live forever. The animals won't. Men and women are given a special role in in Genesis. Uh, We're to have dominion. Uh, We see that chapter 1 verse 28 God is king, but we're to rule under him. He has made us to be stewards of his creation. In the creation stories of other religions, human beings were created as slaves for the gods. But in the true creation story, human beings are made, as Psalm 8 tells us, just a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and majesty. So that's God's people. Secondly, God's place. God makes Adam and Eve. Where does he put them? In a garden in Eden. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is where we get the word paradise from. Paradise was originally just the Greek word for garden. Uh, Though even by New Testament times it had taken on special significance. Jesus says to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, But paradise is looking back to to an unspoilt creation. Uh, Sometimes you'll see holiday brochures trying to to sell you an expensive holiday uh, to an unspoiled paradise. But Eden was the original unspoiled paradise. No thorns, no thistles, no sickness, sin or death. 
And it never needed to come to an end. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? Uh, but that wasn't even the best bit of the Garden of Eden. Uh, the best bit was that every evening God would come to the garden uh, and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And there's good reason for saying that as a, a special reference to, to Jesus Christ. Uh, we thought about, under that last point, about the fact that human beings are made in God's image. And another part of what that means is that we were made for relationship relationship with one another relationship with God we were made to know God above all perhaps you struggle with the question why is there so much suffering in the world well that's not something I plan to answer this morning but what we're looking at here is relevant to that question Because the message of the Bible is that it wasn't always like this. God didn't create men and women and put them in a place where there were gravestones. He didn't create men and women who got hurt, got sick and eventually died. The fact that our world today is a far cry from the Garden of Eden means that something has gone terribly wrong. And next week we'll see what that something is. So far then we have God's people, Adam and Eve, God's place, the Garden of Eden. Uh, And thirdly, finally, we'll take God's rule, blessing and presence together as they're so intertwined. We've already seen uh, God's presence with them in the garden. Uh, But Adam and Eve, they're in paradise. Does that mean they can do whatever they want? No. Uh, There are rules. There is one, one rule spelled out. Genesis 1.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except one. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is king. Eden is part of his creation. And so he makes the rules. After all, it would be a strange king who did not have any laws. And as long as Adam and Eve keep those rules, they live under God's blessing. It really is an idyllic life. Their work was a joy. Their relationship with each other was perfect. When Adam sees Eve in verse 23, he composes the first love poem on the spot. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In verse 25 of chapter 1, they're they're totally relaxed in each other's presence and feel no shame. And above all, they know the blessing of fellowship with God. So that's how the Bible starts. God's people are Adam and Eve. They're in God's place, the Garden of Eden. And as long as they live under his rules and don't eat the forbidden fruit... They're experiencing the blessing of an unspoilt relationship with each other and they enjoy his presence with them. Now, of course, tragically, it doesn't last. The book of Genesis, which begins in paradise, literally ends with one of Adam's descendants in a coffin in Egypt. If you compare how the book begins and how it ends, something has gone terribly wrong. We'll see what that is next week. But we'll also see God's first announcement of his great plan to make rebellious men and women his people once more. 
to bring them into paradise to live with him as people who obey him from the heart and to experience his blessing forevermore. Amen. Well, let's close by singing one of the psalms which speaks of the creation, Psalm 8a. Psalm 8a, the first five verses on page 10. Verse 5 speaks of the dignity of man. For you, a little lower than the angels, have him made, a crown of glory and renown have placed upon his head. Like many parts of the Old Testament, this is a deeper fulfilment. It's quoted in the book of Hebrews as referring to Jesus. As we'll see next week, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were, were driven out of the garden. So God sent a second Adam, Jesus Christ, to live as man, to become man and obey the law that the first Adam failed to keep. So Psalm 8a, uh, these first five verses on page 10, will stand to sing praise. <laughs>